I'll sit in for peace. We thought of this event uh, quite late because I was supposed to be in Mindanao this weekend uh, leading a retreat. And because of the, uh, the trouble there and the violence, we weren't able to go. And so we decided rather than just cancel it, we would do something positive in response to that negative situation, the negative situation of violence that we find uh, in many parts of the world at this moment. And we thought that we would invite people in Manila to come to this uh, Christian meditation room and to simply sit in peace, in the peace of their own heart. And so I hope that uh, the time that we spend together today will have two, two benefits. One will be to help us to discover the peace that is already within our own hearts. And the second benefit will be that we become makers of peace, peacemakers, maybe not in Mindanao, but in our own part of the world, in whatever world that we live in, in our families, in our work, with our friends in the city. And I'd like to begin with some reflections on the meaning of peace and the challenge of peace in the modern world. And uh, to be, and then to lead into a time of meditation. Because we believe that meditation is a way of peace. We're not here just to pray for peace, but to be peace. And we can only truly make peace, a lasting peace, a deep and authentic peace in the world, if we ourselves are filled with peace, if we are peaceful people. And so um, our meditation time is essential to the, the practical nature of what we are doing here and what we are being here this afternoon. And at the end of the afternoon, we will celebrate the Mass to remind ourselves of the peace of Christ. Christ whom we are told is our peace. He himself is our peace. And in the contemplative Eucharist that we will share, and the communion that we will share, we will be able to experience that that peace of Christ is the peace within us. And it is the peace that we can give and exchange with others just as he gave it to us. So let's begin with a, some words of Jesus from the Gospel of John, in which we are reminded of the, of the nature of this peace that brings us together today, and the peace that we wish to people wherever there is conflict, both to the victims of violence and hatred, and also to the perpetrators of hatred and violence. Because peace must extend itself, true peace must always extend itself both to the victim and to the perpetrator, the cause of the violence. Jesus said, Peace is my parting gift to you, my own peace such as the world cannot give. Set your troubled hearts at rest and powerful meaning to touch our minds and open our hearts to change the way we think and to change the way we feel. Peace is my parting gift to you, my own peace such as the world cannot give. Set your troubled hearts at rest and banish your fears. I have spoken 
these words to you, so that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be complete. Peace is my parting gift to you. Peace is a gift in the same way that our very being is a gift. We do not create ourselves, we are given to ourselves. Being is gracious, gratuitous, free. Life is a gift. And that's why all life must be reverenced and treated with sacred respect. And peace is part of that gift of being. We are naturally peaceful beings. To accept the gift of our being, which is the work of meditation, is to accept the gift of peace that is part of our very nature. It is to become more peaceful people. It's one of the first things that people notice when they start meditating in a serious way and make it part of their lives is that they become more patient, less reactive, more forgiving, less judgmental, less condemnatory. When we meditate and as we accept this gift of our being, we also therefore accept the gift of peace. And then Jesus says, my own peace, such as the world cannot give. My own peace. For this peace is part of his own being just as our peace is part of the gift of the gift of our being. And he makes a distinction here between the peace that arises in us from the core of our own being and peace as the world gives it. Uh, art, I think so. And peace as the world gives it. And what's that difference? What's the difference between the peace we find in ourselves as part of the gift of our own being and the, and the peace that we construct in the world through politics, through negotiation, through deal-making, through all the arts of, of social management and organization? Well, I think the difference is this that the gift of peace that we find in our own being is ontological, it's part of being itself. It cannot be destroyed. And once we have touched it, once we are breathing this inner peace, we have found a peace that is resilient, a peace that can confront violence, anger, hatred, when somebody speaks to you angrily or insults you, if you are rooted in this inner peace, then that inner peace is not broken. You may be hurt, but you don't lose that inner peace. And this is the peace of Christ. The peace, his own peace. The peace of the world, on the other hand, is, um, is very fragile. We, we construct uh, ceasefires, we have peace talks, peace settlements, and we try the best we can to prevent, act, prevent violence or to at least reduce violence. But very soon, when circumstances change, or maybe unscrupulous and ambitious, people who have no peace in their own hearts 
decide that they can use anger or religion or circumstances to turn people against each other for their own ends, then that peace, as the world gives it, is quickly lost. And we find ourselves again in a situation like in, as in Mindanao, or in Syria, or in Afghanistan, in many parts of the world. Peace is my parting gift to you, my own peace, such as the world cannot give. And then he tells us, set your troubled hearts at rest. He reminds us that our hearts, our inner world, are agitated. We have many anxieties, many worries, many fears, many uh, memories, memories of hurt, insecurities, many thoughts of vengeance, thoughts of getting our own back. So our hearts are troubled, he tells us. And even if we don't notice that these are troubled much of the time, we know that they are troubled whenever we react in violence, anger, or even sadness, or vengeance, when we are hurt, when we are threatened. So our hearts are troubled and our hearts can easily be agitated. And he tells us, Set your troubled hearts at rest. And this too is the work of deep prayer. <coughs> when we meditate, we inevitably confront the agitated mind, our distracted mind. And sometimes if we go a little deeper, we discover that within our own psyche and the unconscious, there are pockets of anger, pockets of violent sadness, and I'll say a little bit more about the relationship between violence and sadness. And so he tells us, set your troubled hearts at rest and get rid of your fears, banish your fears. He, he identifies fear as one of the main causes of violence. Fear is the opposite of love. Anger or hatred or violence may often be the result of a frustrated love or a rejected love or unrequited love. Most acts of violence in any society are domestic violence and most of them conducted by men against women. Whenever we fear, we, we are probably experiencing a rejection or an imagined rejection. Where we once experienced acceptance and peace and love, for some reason now we feel that it is gone or is under threat, and we react with fear, the fear of losing love, the fear of losing acceptance. And that is what disturbs our hearts. We see it in domestic violence every day, in rich families or in poor families. And we see it on the streets of the war zones as well. So Jesus identifies the human heart and the troubles and the fears of the human heart as the real source of violence. And he tells us to set those troubled and fearful hearts at rest. And the word that we translate as rest can also be translated as stillness or silence. Hezekiah is the Greek word 
that describes uh, the prayer of the heart. When the, when the heart is brought to stillness and silence. Meditation is what troubles, is what sets our troubled hearts at rest and reduces our fears. And therefore this inner work of peace that we do in meditation, and why we come here today, has potentially a very powerful and actual impact on the world around us. I was, um, I said the other day on an interview that uh, when I was asked about the violence in Mindanao, and I spoke about the importance of finding peace in our hearts before we can create or work for peace in the world. And then I was shown a, a um, comment on, a, on Facebook that somebody had sent him. And they said, uh, oh yes, peace in our hearts. Tell that to the terrorists in Mindanao and get your head cut off. Get yourself killed. And I thought about that and I thought, well, possibly. That was certainly the fate of many uh, witnesses to peace that we now admire. Like Jesus, like Nelson Mandela, like Gandhi. And not only the loss of your physical life necessarily, but maybe rejection, abuse, ridicule. But I don't think this undermines the truth of that insight, which is part of human wisdom. That peace externally must depend upon peace interiorly. And that wisdom is so deep within the human, within human culture and human history and human spirituality that we can't dismiss it so easily. We can't just say it doesn't work. And the only way to deal with violence is with more violence. We can't just dismiss as idealistic or evasive this profound insight of the human heart that the peace of the world depends upon the peace of our own hearts. So I understand, of course, we all understand, when we are experiencing violence, rejection or aggression, when somebody speaks angrily to us or acts unjustly towards us, it's difficult to maintain our attitude of wisdom and peace towards that person. It's very easy for us to react with angry words, with rejection, with violence, or to imagine violence towards that person. And in our modern world, much of this reaction, much of this anger is directed against Muslims. The Muslim separatists in Mindanao, the uh, way that the peace process has broken down there over the years. It's very easy there or in Manchester, in England last week, when a Muslim killed 32 innocent young people at a concert, or the attack in Afghanistan a few days ago, yesterday, I think, when um, the uh, 
Uh, there was a huge bomb attack in, uh, in Kabul. So uh, it's very easy for us today to identify one of the great religions of the world, one of the major faiths, just as a, a breeding ground of violence, as a violent religion. Very easy for us to react like that. And I think we have to carefully control our thoughts and control our responses in those situations. The Quran has many verses about the first verse of the Quran, in the name of God, the most merciful, the most compassionate. Repeated hundred and more than a hundred times in the Quran. The Quran that recommends that the best way of, of, of uh, the, the best way of, of proceeding in conflict is not violence but to reconcile. The Quran that abhors any disturbance of the peace, that forbids an aggressive war, and only condones a defensive war. It's very important that when we stereotype Muslims as violent people, all, all Muslims are violent people, who are misreading and misinterpreting the uh, verses in the Quran that are often speaking about different situations. Very often when the Quran uses violent language, it actually has to be read in its historical context. In fact, many of those passages which the terrorists would invoke to justify their terrible outrages were actually written against terrorists, against people who were attacking peaceful people. What of course is necessary and what is lacking in much of the Muslim world is a way of interpreting the scripture. Just as we have learned in the Christian world and in the Jewish world to read the Bible and to interpret it, to see it as a historical document. We don't take the words literally. We interpret the words of the Bible at different levels of meaning. And we try to put those words into a historical context so we can understand what they mean then, what they meant then, and what they mean for us. This is a, a vital part of all enlightened religion that we are able to interpret our own scriptures. This is something that we should we should hope that the uh, Islamic world will be able to do more and more fully. What I what I what I'm thinking about now, though, is how easy it is for us when we are victims of violence to demonize the person who was violent to us or to all the people on their side who are like them or we think are like them to stereotype them and to condemn them all and the great danger of that is that we then are justified in acting towards them as they acted towards us. And therefore, the cycle of violence just keeps on turning and turning and turning. We always use violence, we always justify violence when we use it as a way of ending violence. We say we have to use violence in order to achieve peace. This is the war to end all wars. This is the campaign, whether it's a terrorist campaign or a military campaign, that's going to end, end violence. And this is why we need so urgently today to draw on the wisdom 
of the great spiritual traditions to draw on the contemplative wisdom of those traditions. Because it's only in that contemplative wisdom expressed in those words of Jesus that we can break the cycle of violence and hope step by step to achieve a world of lasting peace. How can we do that? Well, obviously I'm going to suggest that we do it through meditation. But not only meditation. We also have to take a very rational approach to violence whenever it occurs. Not to react violently, because violence is irrational. Violence never achieves its, its objective. If it achieves any objective, it's only for a short time before the person you were violent towards takes revenge against you and the, and the peace as the world gives it breaks down again. And there's another insurgency, another terrorist attack, another war. So, peace, to use violence is irrational. Now, sometimes it's maybe the only thing we can do. If uh, there was a terrorist about to blow up a, a busload of innocent people and you were able to shoot the terrorist to, to prevent him, then probably we would do that and we wouldn't think that it was the wrong thing to do. But we would be very aware of what we were doing and to set a limit to what we were doing. We have to control any use of violence and not become irrational about it. And we also have to recognize that the use of violence can become addictive. Give a gun to a young man, especially a young man who's not particularly well trained and uh, and uh, you put a very powerful force in his hands and you change the way he sees himself and then it's very easy for you to create a kind of uh, euphoria or a kind of lust for violence martial, the martial spirit before a battle you, you, you work up the soldiers into this state of mind so that they will go out to hate the enemy, they go out with full force uh, to, uh, uh, to use every kind of violence they can to destroy the enemy. Immediately after the battle, it's a very different mood and some of your close friends have been killed or you've lost some of your limbs, or you've been traumatized for life. Because it's one thing to imagine killing, or to watch killing on a movie, on an action movie. It's very different to actually be a witness to, to killing or mutilation. Or, of course, to be someone who does the killing yourself. Human beings are not characters in a film. We are human beings who are created and by our very nature are peaceful. To act violently is to act irrationally and unnaturally. So this is the first thing I wanted to say really is that if we want to be able to break the cycle of violence and to be people who believe that we can break the cycle of violence, not like that person who wrote that comment, thought that it was just nonsense to say that we could change people's hearts. If we want to be people of peace, committed to a very difficult task of changing people's hearts, of loving our enemies, and of breaking the cycle of violence, if that's what we want, and I think if that's, if we are followers of Jesus, that's who we must be, then it's important for us to see 
that this is a rational decision. When Jesus was being tried before his uh, death and was uh, being interrogated by the high priest, the high priest asked him a question and Jesus replied, gave him a straight answer. But it was a straight answer that exposed the false mind behind the question. And a soldier standing beside Jesus struck him in the face. And Jesus responded, If I have said something wrong, why do you not point this out to me? And if not, why do you strike me? What a very cool response to an act of violence. This is the coolness of mind and the rationality of mind that we see, for example, in the non-violence of Gandhi, the Ahimsa of Gandhi, who was deeply pained whenever his independence movement to set India free from its colonial uh, occupier. Whenever violence was used, it pained him deeply. And when the, this hope for a united India failed, and violence between the Hindus and the Muslims erupted, huge amounts of killing, he was deeply pained. But he always responded from this place of coolness, of rationality, of peace within himself. And this is the this is the great sign of strength. It's why violence is always a sign of weakness and a sign of irrationality. Whereas to be able to respond to violence with non-violence is a sign of strength and clarity of mind. And this is what we find in the words of Jesus and of course in the example of Jesus and all of the great teachers of non-violence whom we respect and venerate. Violence is always a failure of the imagination. We find ourselves in a situation where irrationality has, has taken over, where people are acting contrary to their own true nature. And imagination, the creative imagination that is necessary to, to conceive of some other way of dealing with the problem, that creative imagination has been destroyed or lost for the time being. Violence is always a failure of the human mind. How do we hold fast to this peace in our own heart, to this peace that passes understanding, to this peace that Jesus leaves us? How do we find it? But then how do we remain grounded in this peace so that when we find ourselves in violent situations, we can resist? Well, the first way, I think, is to reverence life. To see that life itself is a gift and that all manifestations of life are to be not only respected and protected, but actually reverenced. We reverence life when we see that the gift of life in another person or in an animal or in a plant, or in some simple organism, whenever we see life, we know that that same life that is in us is present in those other forms or manifestations of life. That life is a mystery. The uh, uh, NASA and uh, 
scientists are trying to discover other forms of life in the universe. Are we the only form? Are we the only planet with life? We're fascinated, we're drawn to the very idea of life. Why are we here? What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be alive? What is the meaning of our planet? These are the questions that underlie our relationship not only to ourselves and to each other, but also to our environment, to our planet. And that's why we were so delighted a couple of years ago when nearly 200 countries in the world united in agreement after many, many years of many failed attempts to agree on an environmental policy to reduce carbon emissions and bring the terribly dangerous rise in global temperature down to a minimum of two degrees, even that is not perhaps enough. But we, we, were, we were lifted up, our spirits were lifted up to realize that human beings can unite in this reverence for life and this respect for the mystery of our own environment and of our own existence. And so not surprisingly, yesterday, when, the, when President Trump irrationally and rather violently withdrew from this universal agreement, the world, the world was shocked and hurt and felt that it was an act of rejection, an act of violence. And even within the United States, uh, more and more people are, are saying, more governors of states and heads of corporations, even the oil companies, are saying that they will remain faithful to that agreement. So here we have a movement of peace. Peace that is expressed towards the very environment that we're living in. And, to, and a peace that is showing the human family that we are a single family that despite our differences and our conflicts, we are able to work together on such a basic and essential issue. So the first aspect of peace that we have to um, realize is this reverence for life, wherever we find it. And the second important insight that we have to cultivate, we have to work towards, is a vision of social harmony. It's very easy for us to give up on social harmony. To say, well, Jews and Muslims, Israelis and Palestinians will never be able to live together. Christians and Muslims are always going to be in conflict. It's very easy for us to say that Sunnis and Shiites, or Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland, are just always going to be in violent conflict. But if we surrender the vision of universal peace and harmony, then that is exactly what will happen. They will remain in continuous conflict and disharmony. We have to consciously, courageously articulate and support, as we are by our being here today, this vision of harmony, what Jesus calls the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven. It was very difficult for the disciples of Jesus at the time to understand what he meant by the kingdom of God. They thought it was some kind of political achievement that he was talking about. Even when he described the kingdom of God as a process of growth, as a process of healing, as a finding and a, dis and a, and a letting go of the treasure of life. Even when he described it in these spiritual terms, all of the parables of the kingdom point towards this understanding of his meaning. 
even when he said that we cannot observe the kingdom coming. We cannot say, look, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of heaven is within you. But he also could be translated as saying, the kingdom of heaven is among you. Even when he spoke about the kingdom of heaven in these spiritual, mystical terms, they didn't understand him. So it's easy for us not to understand and not to believe in this vision of harmony. But if we don't believe in it, if we don't articulate it to each other, if we don't support each other when we become discouraged, then that vision begins to disintegrate. And in its place, there becomes a, uh, a culture of fear and pessimism. It's very easy for politicians to use those emotions of fear and pessimism to achieve political ends. It's much more difficult for politicians or for any of us to, achieve, to use this vision of the kingdom to achieve peace in the world. But that's our choice. Are we on the side of peace or are we on the side of disharmony and conflict and violence? Are we prepared to risk our vision of peace or are we prepared to surrender into a, a, a cynicism and a hopelessness? And the third, I think, essential element in our understanding of peace and our work for peace is very simple. It's compassion. Compassion. Nothing is more natural to the human being and to feel compassion to those who are suffering, to those in need. Sometimes we can be frightened of compassion because we feel compassion makes us weak. And I think that those who support violence, who fight rather than to re who reconcile, those who are professionally violent, and who believe in violence to achieve their ends, these are the very people who reject compassion as weakness. Because compassion is too dangerous, too strong a force for them. They, they are frightened of compassion. And that's why it's so vital for anyone who believes in peace and is prepared to work for it, To understand the true meaning and the true nature of compassion as something that is integral, something that is so totally natural to the human person. It is easy for us to harden our hearts. It's easy for us to see the innocent victims of a war, the thousands hundreds of thousands of refugees, the thousands of people, even, civilians even, in, in uh, Marawi, who have had to flee their homes. It's easy to see pictures of them on the TV, or for a, a politician or for a, a military officer to look at these, these innocent victims who've never carried a gun in their life many more in number than the armed combatants. It's easy to look at those and say, well, that's very sad, but it's the price we have to pay. But it's not an acceptable price. If your heart is open in compassion, if your heart is human, then you don't find that that collateral damage is acceptable. And we saw for months and months the relentless bombing of Aleppo in Syria. And when finally the, the government forces went in and liberated Aleppo, what did they find? Nothing. It had been totally destroyed. 
It was a military target that had been totally destroyed in the process of liberating it. How irrational can you get? How absurd. And how tragic for the hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians and families and children who were forced to escape. Many of whom had nowhere to go except on the refugee trail to Europe, where they find anger, resistance very often. Thank God that uh, Angela Merkel, acting perhaps out of her Christian origins, uh, responded to them in compassion, although she was later politically criticized for doing so. And how could you turn away those in need, in that, in, uh, uh, in that kind of need? And if you do turn them away, if you do treat them like scum, if you look at them all as terrorists, well, you will be creating some more terrorists of the future. People who have felt rejected and violently scorned by their fellow human beings in their moment of need. So our compassion for others is, is an essential force for creating the kind of peace we need in the world. And again, all of this is simply what we find at the heart of all of the great wisdom traditions. We find it in Buddhism. The first of the five precepts of Buddhism is not to kill. We find it in Hinduism. The taking of life does not lead us to heaven, the Indian teachers say. We find it in Jainism. We find it in Sikhism, at the heart of the contemplative part of all these religions. We find it in the Quran. Slay not the life that God has made sacred. We find it in the fifth commandment of the Bible. So the universal wisdom of humanity is that life must be reverenced, that we must never lose our belief in vision of social harmony, and that we must never close our hearts to others in their need. We need inspiring stories to keep up our hope and to keep ourselves believing in peace. And that's why we've come here today, precisely to support each other, to send out a sign and a witness, and a conviction that peace is possible if we are peaceful beings. I met a very inspiring man a few years ago when I was in uh, uh, Belfast in Northern Ireland for a seminar with the Dalai Lama. And we had organized this seminar, part of the Way of Peace program that our community uh, has with the uh, Dalai Lama, of which this event today is really part. Uh, we went there because we thought Protestants and Catholics, supposedly followers of Jesus, were for, for many generations attacking and killing each other and, and, and uh, dealing with their differences, which were not so great, but dealing with their differences uh, without uh, the ability uh, to reconcile. So we thought, well, what if a, a Christian and a Muslim, uh, sorry, a Christian and a Buddhist monk go there? And with their very big differences between them, we can show that there is a friendship. Is it possible to be friends, to share a common wisdom with people who are different of a different faith? What if we just went there, we expressed this, and we held discussions for peace with all parts of Northern Ireland society? And I, I believe it, we made a, a contribution to the peace process in Northern Ireland. And one of the one of the uh, remarkable people we met during that uh, visit was a man called Michael Moore. 
Michael Moore, as a young boy, at the age of 10, his, his brother had been killed in a demonstration. And five months after his brother had been killed, Michael Moore's, a 10-year-old boy, Michael, I, just, I think we'll do without it. Do, do, you need, do you need this? It's a bit like that. Yes. Well, Michael Moore, as a, as a young boy of 10 years old, had been uh, coming home from school one day. And he innocently walked into a, uh, a conflict between the British Army and some of the nationalists. And the British soldiers, I think you have to turn the volume down a bit, it's uh, resonating too much. Should have done this a little earlier, I think, anyway. So he walked through this uh, conflict zone and the British soldier, the British soldiers at that time were using rubber bullets. And one of these rubber bullets hit him in the face and blinded him in both eyes. He was taken to hospital and uh, his brother, another brother of his, had to break the news to this boy that he would never see again. So he was in hospital for a while. When he came out of hospital, he came home, and his mother took him into his room. And his mother looked, him, looked at him and said to him, there is something you must never do. You must never ever hate the English. And this was, a, this was his saving moment. He was saved from bitterness, from anger, and from violence. And Michael Moore has now set up a, a foundation uh, for children in crisis around the world. And when we introduced him to the Dalai Lama, the Dalai Lama was deeply moved by him and by his story. And he said, Michael is my hero. And they now often work together in uh, conflict zones uh, for peace. So we need stories like that. We need stories that remind us that the human being does not need to respond to violence with violence. But even when we are victims of violence, innocent victims of violence, it is possible for us to respond with love, to see beyond the moment, beyond the person who inflicted that violence on us. And some years later, Michael, said that he would like to meet the soldier who had fired that bullet. He'd never met him before. And they met, and they were friends. And the soldier told him that in all the years since that terrible accident or incident had happened, he had no day had gone by when he had not thought of Michael and of what had happened. We need to love our enemies. And however idealistic that may sound, we can never give up the wisdom of that teaching. And we need to hear from each other stories that remind us it is possible. We need to understand what it means to love our enemies. It means to open our heart to them in compassion for even for what they have done in their blindness of heart. When Jesus was on the cross, he showed compassion 
to those who were killing them. Father, forgive them, because they do not know what they are doing. The heart of Jesus was open in compassion, in wisdom and understanding. He could see what they could not see. Those who are violent in that way are blind. We have to be those who can see and maybe see for them and help them to see. That's the simple choice we have. And according to the choice we make, we make the world a peaceful place or a place in which the cycle of violence increases endlessly, despite the fact that violence only breeds more violence. The wisdom of breaking the cycle of violence begins with discovering peace within our own heart. Not the outward peace that comes and goes according to political weather, but the peace such as Jesus gives, the peace that is rooted deeply in the very gift of our own being. And that's why I believe it's not fantastic and it's not idealistic and it's not unrealistic to say that meditation is a way of peace and contributes to peace in Mindanao or in Syria or in Belfast or in Afghanistan or in the homes of men and women and families all around the world where domestic violence breaks out. It isn't unrealistic to say that meditation needs to be taught and practiced in order to make the world a more peaceful place and to contribute, first of all, to the reduction of violence and ultimately to the breaking of the cycle of violence. We may fail, but better to fail doing the right thing than to succeed in doing the wrong thing. Because even if we fail doing the right thing, we have left a message. We have left an example to those who may do better than we do. That's why it's so important for us to teach meditation to children. And a few days ago in this uh, meditation room, we were listening to teachers from schools in Manila who are now teaching meditation throughout the school. One school told us that they had 2,000 pupils. Once a week, all 2,000 meditate together for five or 10 minutes. But every day, each class, each uh, classroom in the school begins the day with a time of meditation. It's possible. It's necessary. Is common sense. So if we want to do something practical for the peace of the country in, in the next generation, and maybe, although we have to deal with the situation today, but maybe it's more important for us to look ahead. If we want to do something practical, there is nothing more powerful than teaching children to meditate. It isn't difficult to teach a child to meditate. They like to meditate. And they will describe in very simple language what I've been talking about. Just as I say that meditation opens our hearts in compassion. So a child will say, as a young boy said to me when I asked him, what, what did, what, what effect does meditation have on you and your friends in the class? And he said, hmm. He said, before meditation, 
he said, uh, we, if I ask somebody to do something, he said, they usually say no. But after meditation, they usually will do it. Or the teacher who will say that they, me they meditate with the children every day because they notice that the children are nicer, kinder to each other, less bullying. Or the little girl who said to me, I said, do you, do you meditate at home? She says, yes, I like to meditate at home. And she said, I often fight with my little sister. And when I fight with my sister, I then go, to go away somewhere quiet and I meditate. Because she doesn't like to be in that state of anger and hostility with her little sister. So, out of the mouths of babes comes the wisdom that we need to apply to our modern world. The child will tell us that it is possible through stillness and silence, the work of meditation, to find this peace of Christ within our own hearts. It is possible for us to respond to anger, to bullying, to violence, in a peaceful way, and to change the minds and hearts of the people involved. So, although it is important for us to teach the child to meditate, it's also very important for us to allow the children to teach us. <laughs>